This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Beyond Zero is a not-for-profit research and education organization. We design blueprints for a zero-emissions economy. As climate change becomes more apparent, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th-century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero-emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero-emissions energy, zero-emissions buildings and zero-emissions high-speed rail. Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at radio team at beyondzeroemissions.org. Good evening, everybody, and good evening, Jane. How are you tonight? I'm excellent. A lovely day in Melbourne today. Yes. We're going to have a marvellous show tonight about health, basically. We're going to talk to Julie Lyford, who's from Groundswell, Gloucester. Then we're going, and they've just had a big win against AGL Colseum Gas. Then we're going to talk to Dr. Liz Hanna, who is a professor of um, public health, but she's uh, very interested in the CSIRO cuts and what you know, climate scientists and their research, if they are sacked, what that will do for our health system. And the last person is Tom Doig talking about Morwell and the Morwell Mine Fire Inquiry. So stay tuned until 5.30 for Tom Doig. And now we're going to have Julie Lyford. Uh, Julie represents Groundswell Gloucester. They have campaigned for seven years against AGL's gas exploration in the most beautiful farming valley in New South Wales. The traditional owners there are called the Birripi and Waramai people. And then on 4th of February this year, AGL walked away. Is this just a local victory or something bigger? So, Julie, welcome back. Thank you very much, Vivian. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Tell us what happened. Well, this has been a pretty long sort of journey for everybody over seven years now. And we, we've sort of known for the last three to four years that scientifically from a hydro, hydrology and hydrogeo, sorry, from a geology and hydrogeology perspective that this was never going to be scientifically possible. And I think what happened with AGL, they had a, a management structure and a board that just accepted whatever was given to them and when the new CEO came in and was alerted to some of these key scientific issues and other issues he very quickly realised that um, this was something that they needed to exit from from a scientific and economic perspective. So that's, that's it in a nutshell but having said that the community opposition to delay all of the operations of AGL until this decision was made has been very, very constructive and um, very effective. Yes, it's been a wonderful thing. I came up to one of your the big meetings there where city people came up and it was marvellous, the sort of feeling between the people there, the solidarity and just working with the townspeople and just persisting mm. and delaying. But listen, fracking for gas uses millions of litres of water and there's a danger of contaminating the drinking water for thousands of people, in your case downstream from Gloucester. Was it pressure from them in part that turned AGL away? 
One of the key things that we knew from, from the start was that BTEX, which is highly carcinogenic group of chemicals, benzene, toluene, xylene and ethylene, um, were naturally occurring in those coal seams. So whenever AGL were going to frack the coal seams, BTEX would always be a byproduct of the flowback water. That is the fracking chemicals that go down, which a lot of them we don't know what they are, and um, and the water that comes up with those fracking chemicals. That's the flowback water. Mm. So we, we knew that, AGL knew that, but then all of a sudden they found BTEX in their flowback water and shock horror alerted the state government who shut them down. This was around the Wolkivery pilot program, but mm. this is just an indicator of they knew that it was going to happen. There are 75,000 people downstream, 110 in their holiday season and, and summer season that were all at risk from any sort of contamination from those wells into the aquifers or water systems or the Avon catchment, the Manning catchment. Mm. So that was just one example of... It's, it's a cavalier cowboy attitude. And in actual fact, at a meeting, um, the hydrogeologist in charge of the AGL operation said, we use adaptive management. When something happens, we adapt fix it and move on mm-hmm. and uh, you know I mean people should be under no illusion of how cavalier this industry is and the health impacts from water contamination alone are horrendous as we can see in Queensland at Condamine River and also the Pilliga with their with their spills that they've had out there they all sit above the Great Artesian Basin I mean it's f- sheer folly the coal seam gas industry is so risky uh, the contamination is real. This is folly to mm. just tamper with our drinking water. Well, have there been any health impacts on the community just with the test drilling? There have, haven't been any demonstrable health pack, impacts that we know about on the community with those four pilot um, wells being drilled. There are a lot of cattle that have been around that area, dairy cattle, which we've got concerns about. It, it's been shown up in um, Queensland that there are potential effects with cattle actually drinking um, water puddles around and, and eating the fodder. In fact, when AGL did their irrigation trial, which had, had to be stopped because of the increase of salt and cadmium uptake in the fodder, just one um, heavy metal, and that was through AGL's own Fodder King report, it clearly shows that irrigating that produced water, which is once the flowback water with the fracking chemicals in it have apparently gone, you never get all the fracking chemicals out, Mm. even the industry admits that, but they were spraying produced water onto crops as an irrigation trial. Uh, We always knew it was going to be a disaster and it it was. The EPA actually said they could no longer do it. So there's health impacts for animals as well. And that brought into um, the NVDA, National Vendor Declaration um, process for beef and cattle producers, dairy producers. They have to actually say about the health of their cattle. They have to prove that their cattle have not been contaminated um, from particular um, issues or events. And that was never, ever... There was never a guarantee to any of those producers of no contamination to the fodder or groundwater for that, for the cattle. Well, I think you're real heroes, really, your community, because 
<clears throat> you've been the uh, you've been so well informed. You've informed yourself over the seven years, and I've met quite a few of you. You know, you, you've really just kept at it. And this is something that we can replicate in other parts of Australia. Australia, as Drew Hutton always says, Queensland. It, it all happened too quickly there before anyone could sort of start locking their gates. But you've locked up your whole valley and uh, and sort of succeeded. And so this is. It's an ongoing problem in Australia that other companies are trying to to take coal seam gas. But I um, just like to move on, Julie. I, just to say, I just really when, later we're going to talk to Tom Doig about the Morwell mine fire, and you know, and that mm. town was just like a guinea pig for the mine fire, and it was the same sort of cavalier attitude, as far as I can understand. But we'll, that's at the end of this program. So this is why this whole program is really about health in a way. Mm. I know climate change is not the main issue for many people, but. Anyone opening a new gas or coal project now after Paris is crossing that red line. Many listeners might have seen pictures on YouTube of the angels, guardian angels, with this big red ribbon, and and it was the line that you were not to cross if you wanted to Mm. keep the safe climate Mm. limits. And I wonder if AGL's shareholders really realised what a risk they were taking to invest in this company. That's very interesting. Uh, it's a really good comment, actually, because with health, climate change is quite an issue. In fact, we have a colleague who works in the medical field and um, has written a paper about Europe and has been over there quite some time talking about their evacuation centres when they have um, climate events because they're not used to the heat, whereas Australia doesn't seem to be taking it quite so seriously. No. But, you know, the scientific consensus is that majority of fossil fuels need to remain undeveloped. And a greenfield fossil fuel project like the AGL one is not environmentally responsible. Um, it's particularly worrying in terms of climate change because of methane's global warming potential. And the, the stats we have is that methane is 84 times more effective at trapping heat than CO2 over the first 20 years after they are both emitted and then 28 times more effective over 100 years. Mm. And fugitive emissions around gas wells are very well documented. Even in Camden, the EPA audit found that one in 10 gas wells were leaking. We all know about the Porter Ranch huge leak in America. So so this is, this is it's, it's so, in fact, it's hard to get your head around how politicians and people in the industry think that they can get away with what they're doing. It, it's, it's so outrageous. Yeah. And the mental health issue that's visited on communities is is quite appalling. Mm. I know the Gloucester communities suffered quite greatly with this and in fact finding people to actually come and and talk today they're so tired even with the win Mm. I think they're tired with the lack of trust in government the duplicity and when you mentioned shareholders Mm -hmm. the figure was given to me that actually I I need to clarify but I'm being given by Mm. given up by a fairly um, good investment analyst is that to date 1.2 billion dollars billion dollars has been spent on the AGL gas field Mm. and and it's all for nothing Mm. and they knew all along that this was not going to work from a scientific perspective wow well look what message does this fracking saga send us about corporate influence over the government then i imagine that groundswell gloucester didn't really have the access to government that AGL did 
No, we've actually we actually haven't finished. Everybody's saying, but you've won, you've won, <laughs> and it, we, we work as a team. Ground, I'm very proud of the Groundswell Gloucester team, and and I'm really proud to say that we've worked with some incredible organisations who have supported us and assisted us along the way. And Beyond Zero Emissions is one of them, and we've got Lock the Gate, our Land, our Water, our Future, Nature Conservation Council. They're, they're endless, and I think the government doesn't understand, or governments do not understand that this is a grassroots community-led growth of opposition, peaceful opposition to what they see as grossly unjust, grossly unfair and absolutely wrong in terms of environmental sustainability and climate change. And one of the key things we've been doing is following up on breaches. We've, we've got a document called Environmental, Social and Governance Poor Practice of AGL by AGL um, within the Gloucester Gas Field. It's on our website. And I would encourage people to read it because it's something other communities can use the template and put their own scenario in. But one thing that we... we Jenny O'Neill, one of our great researchers, and John Watts, found breaches of political donation disclosure laws and there were 11 mm -hmm. and in actual fact they've just been upheld and it's in the paper it was in the paper last week and they have, AGL have pleaded guilty to 11 counts of breaking political disclosure laws after a probe prompted by Groundswell Gloucester and they pleaded guilty to those sentencing is set down in June and New South Wales planning are prosecuting AGL on those cases the issue that we have with that is, what about all of the parliamentarians and the bureaucrats working within the government that have consistently, what we say, alleging collusion with the company? We have actually had freedom of information um, reports that we've asked for come back to us redacted. We reapplied to the ombudsman who said, no, they have to send Just them to out. Just explain to the listeners what redacted means. What did it look it like? It means everything that, that, is, that they have written between themselves has been completely blacked out. Mm. So you actually can't see what the, the information is that you've been asking for. Mm. But what, one of the key things that we had with um, a changing of a state environmental planning policy is we've now got AGL AGL company people talking to people within the department as to how they can actually change um, the SEP and what wording they can use and it's, it's just a whole collusion it's mm. just really amazing so we've got a lot more to expose yet this is going to be an incredible story of government ineptitude and collusion but also the cowboy and cavalier attitude of the coal and gas industry it's appalling it mm. needs to be exposed and it before, and Victoria, they need to say no, lock the gate now because there's nothing but heartache, trouble, pollution and injustice on a very large scale. Yeah. Well, look, people are fighting this around the world from farmers in Poland against Chevron, um, unions in Tunisia I read about there against Shell and the French have actually banned shale gas extraction and just last week I saw on YouTube um, some nurses and midwives standing in the Pilliga forest against Santos gas and I that just was, was, I was there you I were was there. there I just that thought that me. was magnificent <laughs> one of 
Excellent. Well, were you one of the nurses? Oh, yeah. look, that was fantastic to see them in this bush setting, and there they are, mm. professional people. And then there were the guardian angels being dragged away by the police, and they've obviously got this red line concept. You've crossed the line. We've yep. got to stand here and in this remote place stand up. And I, I, I know that 350.org is having a campaign in May to keep it in the ground, and they're talking about massive sort of mm. uh, lock-ons or you know disobedience in that sort of way because uh, I think at the Sustainable Living Festival yesterday they were talking. That's what it's come to. We now, people like us, have got to do that and um, yeah. uh, preferably retired human. people so they, if they get a criminal record it doesn't matter. But um, can, you talk, can you tell us about how we can join campaigns in other gas fields? Absolutely. Look, I think this is a fundamental human rights issue and social justice issue and and the line has been crossed by government and industry, not only in the coal seam gas space, but very clearly in the coal mining space. I mean, what's happening in the Hunter is heartbreaking, absolutely. Uh, you know, ecocide is the word that comes to mind. But what happened in the Pilliga, just briefly, is that the, I was out there just after the Guardian Angels had been dragged off, and um, it was appalling the way that was um, dealt with. And when uh, I'm a retired nurse, and we stood with the other nurses, uh, there was a line of cutouts of people that couldn't be there, nurses and health professionals mm -hmm. across the road. And one thing I said to the nurses that were there is that there's no way the police will come out and arrest or be seen to be trying to deal with nursing because we both work on the front line. Mm. And, a, and a photograph of a policeman in uniform mm -hmm. and a nurse in uniform... You know, trying to nurses trying to protect the health of people by opposing coal seam gas, and the police trying to uphold what they see as people breaking the law. That was never going to happen because mm. I think it would have taken the Baird government down. To be quite frank, <laughs> I think it would have been. I think it would have been such a shocking um, visual yes. for people to see. And then the security guard said, "Oh, there's a truck coming. Could you move those that that line of?" health professionals that could be here off the road and we said no we will photograph you driving over it the truck turned around and went away they were really really conscious that this was a very delicate situation so i would encourage all health professionals throughout australia to actually get to the front line peaceful non-violent demonstration go to the pilliga go to the camp, find out what's happening there. Um, just go on to the Lock the Gate websites, Orlando Water our Future websites, Pilliger Push websites or, or their Facebook sites mm. and you'll find out what's happening and I'm sure in other states um, people can find out what's happening in their areas. But don't be frightened. No. You, you're actually, as they say, you know, when you can see grave injustice, you actually need to stand up. Fantastic. Thank you, Julia. Well, you've, you've certainly stood up and la last year you received the Order of Australia for your leadership and I'd like to congratulate you for that. Thank you. So we've been talking to Julie Lyford from Groundswell Gloucester where they had a win against AGL but I can see Julie is not going to uh, go back home and do some knitting after that. She's going to keep on and so must we. So thank you very much, Julie. Now we're going to have a little bit of music and then we're going to talk to uh, Liz Hanna. Your love is lifting me
podcast. So keep it up. Subscribe or renew to 3CR in this our 40th year of Radical Radio. Call 9419 8377 or donate online at 3cr.org.au. And we'll be at your side forevermore. Dr Liz Hanna is the President of the Climate and Health Alliance. She says the proposed cuts to the CSIRO would would gut climate science. So welcome, Liz. Can you tell us how will the sacking of CSIRO climate scientists put our health at risk? The, um, it's, a, it, it's, a, it's a link that not a lot of people probably you know, would, would spring to mind um, in the minds of many because often people are now thinking that you know, climate is related to the weather, it's, you know, it's floods, it's... Um, you know, it's extreme st- storms. Mm. But the issue is that all these affect human health. Um, you know, the floods, it interrupts water supply, damages homes, increases risks of disease, people have direct injuries mm. um, and uh, increased risk of, of contamination. Um, and, you know, it takes a very long time for, for floods to, um, to subside and, uh, and for the full clean-up. Same thing with, you know, bushfires and heat extremes. And so we're needing to understand the pattern that we're going to get, the frequency, yes. the intensity, so that we can prepare. And if we remove that science and indeed, you know, do what the, um, you know, the um, uh, CEO has been, I would imagine, employed specifically to do. Yes. Um, and that's really, really halve the expertise in Australia mm. on, um, on climate science. So we... It means that we'll be operating blind. Yes. Um, and you cannot prepare, you cannot protect the human health if you don't know, you know, you don't know what's happening. People around the world, they're not going to be looking at Australia. They look at their own countries. And, uh, and we had such excellent, excellent research and researchers and, and climate programs that we had international recognition as one of the, you know, some of the leading lights in terms of, in terms of you know, the high quality understanding. Yes. Well, everyone's saying that, and there's been a protest from international scientists. Well, I have a quote here from the CEO of the CSIRO. His yes. name's Larry Marshall, and he said, the people that were so brilliant at measuring and modelling climate change might not be the right people to figure out how to adapt to it. Well, I'd like... <laughs> could you give us an analogy in health research, for example? Imagine the continuous data set on, say, how humans respond to heat waves... You know, and we know, like in Darwin, they don't get any more heat wave days, and and we need to be prepared. Say all that data set was just stopped, and medical researchers were sacked in favour of people doing adaptation. And I'd like to know: well, we need both, don't we? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And you know, he's wrong in saying that the people that are only getting sacked are those doing the modelling. Um, so that's that's actually untrue. Yeah. Um, and the interesting thing is, of course, that. The NHNMRC has not funded any any research group in any university throughout Australia for over five years to look at the impacts of climate change and human mm. health. So the last place it was happening was at CSIRO. Mm. And if we don't, again, if we don't know, you know, the rate of the warming and indeed the um, how we how we might adapt to it, such as. We need that information to identify that, uh, for example, that trees, mm. having heavy foliage trees, 
really cools it down. So if you can knock off about five degrees, um, that can be the difference between life and death. And of course, you know, you need the long-standing programs to be able to measure that. Now, that's an adaptation process, um, um, response: is to ensure that we, uh, you know, the limited water that we do have, that we don't chuck it down the sink, and such that we actually try to conserve the life of trees to cool uh, to cool our urban areas. Um, Liz, could you paint us a picture of? Um, what happens if the uh, people who are researching land and water at the CSIRO are not sending data to people like yourself who need to know how to work on public health and prevention? The, I mean, this is really important work for Australia and, and uh, other countries are not going to be do, doing it for us. They're concerned with their own countries and some of the international expertise helps out the developing countries. Um, and But in Australia, I mean, we're, we're in such a unique situation that... Uh, Australia has the world's most variable rainfall. You know, this uh, droughts and flooding rains mm-hmm. um, depicted at the beginning of last century mm. was very, very true. And our population is increasing, so our demand for water is increasing. And during the millennium drought, and of course, you know, we don't know when another drought like that is going to come past. Mm. Already Queensland is 80% drought affected. Yeah, oh, yes, yes. I yeah. mean, they've just had a major thing. And it mm. really means that these communities and the people living in them are facing the challenge of, is it viable? Can we continue to live here? And what do we need to be able to survive very long periods of, of very deep drought? Mm. You know, is it, you know, can you run a farm? Can you have a community living in an area that might go for, you know, umpteen years without rain? Mm. You know, when you consider the cost and, of course, the quality of the water uh, degrades, mm. when you get the water levels down so low, it increases, it, and it's hot, mm. um, it increases the, um, um, the bacterial growth um, and it then can become quite uh, a dangerous in terms of infective and mm. indeed with other things, like it can be toxic in terms mm. of blue-green algae. Mm. Um, and so these are, you know, these are hugely important for human health. The- Tabloids might not use this word vector-borne disease, and I at first didn't really know what it was either, but they've gone to town with the Zika virus, and uh, that is a vector-borne disease. So would you tell us how climate scientists can inform medical people to prevent the worst of climate change and how they might alert governments, for example, to go into top gear? The vector-borne disease diseases that, that are of major concern for us, of course, are those that are transmitted by... Uh, mosquito is the vector and they you know like anything else there's a preferred environment for them they you know when it needs to be a certain temperature range and certain um, level of water they don't like the dry environments so again it gets back to the conditions where those mosquitoes are more likely to to flourish and of course they increase their reproduction rate so they vastly increase in numbers and as they're with a certain temperature, they're more active, so they're biting more frequently. Now, it's that information on the climate uh, and what we're about to have, which helps us do our, you know, our, our understanding and our preparation in terms of what regions might become more favourable for these vectors and the diseases they carry, move down into different areas. So, again, it's really critical work. Well, you you said before that maybe this uh, new CEO has been put there to make cutbacks in the cost of the CSIRO. Do you think this is short-sighted in terms of the cost of health when we have uh, like a Zika virus outbreak? Oh, heavens yes. It's it's transferring 
you know, transferring costs from one area to another. And it's much more expensive to to make somebody well again, um, or indeed if, if someone becomes permanently incapacitated, um, you know, that's much more of a burden, cost burden on, on the health services and, of course, their, their lack of earning capacity and their diminished um, ability to support their families mm. and help out in the community. So it's, 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 it's really short-sighted and, and very blinkered to actually think that we can make a major cut to such a vital area and, you know, we won't need to pick up those costs elsewhere yes and, and that doesn't even include the tragedy of the you know human suffering that oh. goes along with it but it's just very much more expensive yeah well look the public health association of australia supports the over 3,000 climate scientists who are now calling for this decision about the csiro to be reversed even al gore came out and said this decision to cut uh, csiro's effort uh, should be revisited at the highest level of government and I'd like to know what nurses and doctors at the front line are saying, you know, to you about this. Um, I, I have, I really appreciate the people like I saw nurses and midwives, you know, out in the Pilliga Forest blockading the coal seam gas that they're trying to drill for there. And there they were, these well, in their scrubs, you know, just out there in the forest saying that we're standing up because this is very bad for the health, uh, coal seam gas. So I think that's a climate sort of theme. Do you think nurses and doctors are angered by this CSIRO oh, decision? It, enormously so, because you, one of the reasons we get so passionate about this is that, you know, being at the front line, we're the ones actually having to deal with the people who suffer the consequences of all this, mm. um, you know, and who are wondering, you know, why, why me, why aren't, you know, they doing mm. something about it? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why we try to, we try to block it, because it's, it, you know, it's really, you know, hard heart-wrenching to actually face, you know, face people and having to tell them, you know, the bad news if there's, you know, bad news to be had. And so we see the human tragedy that goes with it. And that's why it's, 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 it's lunacy. And it's, you know, we're really, really very irate at, at such short-sighted um, thing that's, that's inevitably going to damage the human health and, uh, and you know, have devastating effect on human lives on, on thousands of people across Australia. Mm. Do you think there's any chance, I think you were at a conference last week and people were hopeful that those scientists would, um, you know, rise up about this. Is there a chance that these this decision will be reversed or some of these sackings will stop in the climate science area? There was, um, it was, it was a really sad, um, a sad conference because virtually everyone that got up that spoke from um, CSIRO um, recognising that this, you know, this might be the end of their work. Um, and so, it, I mean, it, if, it's very difficult. Some of these areas, if you do, if you do become active, then that might increase your chance of of your head being on the chopping block. Um, oh, you mean politically so it, active? Yes, yes. If oh, they're politically right. active, it, it could be very damaging for them. Um, and the other thing is, of course, it's uh, they've had so many redundancies before that anyone who was at the, on the point of retiring that was ready to ready to leave they've already gone mm-hmm. so the, the workers that are still there uh, need their jobs um, and so you know that's a personal level for for them and so we you know, everyone was very very gloomy about the um, about the prospect of uh, being that decision being reversed coming from within CSIRO mm-hmm. because I mean you know this fellow was appointed 
specifically to do this, mm. um, as far as we can tell. So I think this is why we need to apply pressure to our government um, and point out the fact that it's the ramifications of such a silly decision and how it's going to have far-reaching, damaging effects and hope that once they realise that, once they realise that Australia, you know, many sectors across Australia are up in arms and furious, that then they might have the, uh, you know, the tenacity to stand up to the naysayers and, um, and reverse the decision. Yeah. But I think it must come from the government. Yeah, well, I think there is that international pressure. Look, just to finish, Liz, um, the Climate and Health Alliance, I always like their materials because they emphasise the what could be. You know, if you took action, what could be? You could gain all across the health spectrum, you know, just from people riding their bicycles and getting thinner and all of that. But I remember David Suzuki talking about a time when the Americans were trying to get onto the moon and he said it was just marvellous. He was young then and he said suddenly a huge amount of research money was available because they were going to the moon and any project was sort of funded. Uh, what would it be like if we really did everything that we said we were going to do at Paris uh, to prevent the worst of climate change? What would it look well, like? Yeah, that's a, that's, a, that's a great question because we, we actually know what needs to be done and we have the capacity to do it to actually prevent catastrophic warming. The, ma- the main thing is stop coal immediately. Now, we could really ramp up in this. We could transform... Um, our economy and our lifestyle away from fossil fuels. Mm. You know, it's, it is possible to go to go renewable and have m- pretty much all of it. I mean, it, it'll take a while for for it all, but most of our energy requirements, particularly in a place like Australia, can come from renewables. And if we don't do it, if we don't do it, then it's going to be devastating. But the thing is, we can, and and so our children can have. You know, can have a happy and healthy future. Mm. You know, with a stable climate, and um, you know, not have so much economic drain. Because the longer we leave it, the harder it is, and the more economic impost it's going to have when governments are going to have to repair the old bridges and repair all the roads. Mm. Um, you know, because of the damage that happens with the you know freak weather events and storms and floods divert money away from health and education and such. So we can do it. We just have to want to, and the government basically needs everyone to really push them and saying we want a future. And this is why we, um, this is why we really fully support uh, the research um, on account of if, if you know, we're at the coalface. We mm. see this every day. About adaptation, you work in heat stress, don't you? I think that's your yes. big area. Yes. What are the adaptations? There's a lot of this warming locked in since we cut the carbon tax. Our emissions have been rising and the global emissions are still rising. What adaptation in the health field do you wish to see? You know, if we um, pull all the stops out and put money into it. Well, we can change our, change our lifestyle um, in terms of... Uh, reorganising what we can, reorganising things to the cooler part of the day, not expecting people to have to be active. I mean, when um, uh, India had their massive heat waves, the government t- told the taxi people that they could stop work between the, uh, you know, the hottest four hours of the day, mm. um, which, which meant that business had to rearrange itself because you couldn't expect business to force those people to sit in the heat mm. and die because mm. it was so hot. Mm. Um, and these are things that become social. We have um, 
you know, we need to make sure that it's it's okay for construction workers not to work in the heat. Because remember, we've had the um, we heard of the the big storms in um, and blizzards in the states. They have laws where when those big blizzards are on, that it is illegal to be out in the streets unless you are a um, essential services in the act of duty or be on your way on your way home Um, and so Australia is possibly looking at those sort of things for heat yes Um, you know it's it's weird to imagine but it's um, so we're going to have to all accommodate the fact that some things can't be can't be done in the heat and the problem is of course it's not it's not just a wait for tomorrow when we get heat waves of 15 days or so um you know, people do need to be able to get out and get their water supplies mm. and, um, you know, try and get what food they can into the shops and people to go to the shops to get their food. Um, and so there's, it's, it's going to be a whole restructuring of society as well as, as, well as people's personal you know, personal activities. Mm, all right. Well, I, I I like to hear that because something is happening on that front. And um, I, let's hope that the next time we speak, the CSIRO, some of those jobs have been restored and maybe the thrust of it, which that uh, Larry Marshall was saying, will have been uh, changed in terms of world opinion because we need both the adaptation and the mitigation and we, we really don't need to lose any brainy science, no, climate no. scientists, I don't think, because they'll go offshore no. and that's a brain drain for us. Yes, no, no, we can't, we can't afford that. I mean, that um, we don't want to become the, you know, the stupid country. No. Oh, well, thank you very much, Liz. Yes. We've been okay. speaking okay. to Dr. Liz Hanna uh, from the ANU. She's president of the Climate and Health Alliance. Your love is lifting me year of Radical Radio. Call 9419 8377 or donate online at 3cr.org.au and we'll be at your side forevermore. We're back at the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show. I'm going to talk now to Tom Doig. He's the author of The Coal Face. It's a short book. You might have seen it, listeners. Little pale blue penguin book about the 2014 Morwell mine fire. And since we spoke to him last year, he has now won the Oral History Innovation Award in 2015 for an outstanding fusion of oral history, journalism, and political activism. And that book really is it. It's called The Coal Feast. It's a marvelous record of what happened there. He will be at the Transition Film Festival uh, next week on Friday the 26th talking about Overburden, which is a new film about a mine disaster in America. Tom, welcome to the Beyond Zero Emissions program. Hi, Vivian. Thanks for having me. I'm really pleased to hear from you again. Your book documents what happened to the people of Moore when the bushfire leapt into the coal mine at Hazelwood. What happened next? Well... This, the fallout from the fires have been continuing in lots of ways, both literal and figurative. So, Vivian, I guess one of the main things that's been happening for the last 18 months is 
There was a, a mine fire inquiry, which is sort of one step down from a royal commission um, into the events surrounding the fire. And it was actually, um, it's been headed by uh, Sir Justice Bernard Teague, who, who headed the Black Saturday bushfires mm. royal commission. Um, so the, the first inquiry actually happened in 2014, in the months immediately after the bushfire. Um, but it, the terms of reference are really limited and it didn't even look at um, the health impacts on the community in any detail, which um, the community, of course, was outraged about. And um, when the Andrews Labor government got elected in late 2014, they promised to reopen the inquiry. And thankfully, they have done that. Um, so the inquiry has been going um, for the last, since May last year. And there's been a lot of really interesting findings. Um, so there's four sections to the, the inquiry. One of them was looking at um, Anglesey, which is a coal mine down on the surf coast, which is closed. Um, and that's sort of going fine. No problems there. No news there. <laughs> um, and then there's been two sections looking at um, the health impacts in the Latrobe Valley. Um, so, so late last year the inquiry found that, yes, there was an increase in deaths in the Latrobe Valley and that, yes, the minor fire was the most likely cause, um, well, which is a big, a big finding and which contradicts uh, all of the official messaging coming from the Department of Health and the Chief Health Officer, Rosemary Lester. any of us who read your book knows that you found that out and um, <laughs> you, you're yeah. a good journalist. I think you just went and asked the people who counted and, and yeah. you found that out. But in your book, you included anonymous testimony from yes. contractors and I was very moved by that because some of them said they had been forced to work inside the mine which was burning all around the edges and they'd had to take their trucks down there without safety yes. equipment and some of them were then told to avoid the CO2 testing stations. I imagine these were put up to test their health, how much CO2 was in their blood. They had to avoid those stations by going out the back gate and then some of them said they were vomiting and unsafe, dizzy on the road. They should never have been driving those big trucks and this was anonymously at first it was on facebook and some of them said it i think to uh the cfmeu person yeah. or to naomi yes well yeah. um were these people who were afraid of losing their job you know who gave that um anonymous testimony able to give testimony to the inquiry Look, that's a, that's a fabulous question. I mean, one of the hardest things about this disaster for the community has been that some of the people who have been worst affected are actually the employees of the mine and the power station and also contractors sort of working to support those workers. And the firefighters um, too. Yeah, and, and the firefighters from the MFB and the CFA. Um, and look, I'm actually writing a much longer book about this disaster, mm. which um, should come out next year, hopefully. Mm. And one of the things which has been sort of both... Um, uh, I guess exciting and quite uh, disturbing that happened since my, my small book, The Coalface, came out is I've actually been approached by a couple of workers who, who wanted to share their stories with me. Um, and I've heard some really horrendous stories from an employee uh, who I won't name, but no. um, in, in the, the longer book I will, um, who actually worked for three months on night shift, working seven days a week, 12-hour shifts, driving an excavated digger, on top of the burning coal in areas that were too dangerous for the firefighters, the trained firefighters to work on, the firefighters had um, breathing apparatuses, either you know respirator, dust masks, or, or oxygen tanks. But this this work crew um, of fifteen people didn't weren't given masks ever in a, in a three month period. Um, and this perfectly healthy worker is now dying of a terminal lung disease. Um, 
Actually, look, I'll name him because there is some media about him. It's David Briggs. So if you Google David Briggs, it comes up. Um, so David's story is just a horrible confluence of mm. uh, poor workplace uh, employment standards, uh, meeting sort of horrendously complex industrial disaster, sort of triggered by climate change and bad energy policies. Mm. Um, and look, one of the, the darkest and most kind of outrageous parts of, of David's story is that all of the work crew are on what are called on-call casual contracts, which means you get a call every morning confirming that, yes, you should come into work that day. And and the way that David tells it, uh, the second that anyone makes any complaints about any kind of safety um, standards on the site, they just stop getting that call. Um, so you effectively lose your job, but you're still on the books, so you can't go on the dole or apply for other work. Um, so there's this incredibly kind of precarious... Um, employment situation you know even though these guys are getting paid really good money mm. they they cannot they've got no workers rights whatsoever that's um, awful and yeah i want to know how criminal charges haven't been laid against the company which is gdf sewers it's partly uh, part of the french government owned isn't it and yeah. the inquiry found an increased number of deaths likely caused by the air pollution how come it, there's no criminal liability in all of that well, it's a very good question, and, and part of the, the problem is the sort of vagaries of corporate ownership. So the French government part-owned GDF Sewers, which is one of the largest energy utilities, I think it's the largest energy utility in the world. Um, GDF Sewers have billions of dollars and hundreds of thousands of employees, and they own many small subsidiary companies, including Hazelwood Power Corporation, which owns the Hazelwood Mine. Um, so any criminal charge is going to be placed against Hazelwood. Um, and that's actually started, I think, about two weeks ago, WorkSafe Victoria announced that they're pressing charges against Hazelwood Power Corporation um, for 10 separate breaches of the Occupational Health and Safety Act, um, which includes basically uh, putting and not having a safe workplace and putting your workers at risk, but also uh, putting the community uh, of the surrounding area, mainly Morwell, at risk. Um, so, so criminal charges are pending, um, probably in the magistrate's court, maybe the Supreme Court, and each of these charges have a maximum fine of $1.3 million at a magistrate's level and more in the Supreme Court. So Hazelwood Power Corporation could be looking at upwards of $13 million in fines. Mm. Um, and the EPA haven't pressed charges yet, but are expected to very soon. There's a lot of pressure on them from the, the state government. Um, one of the problems, or I mean, this is very good and it's very important, but one of the problems is, is that Hazelwood, you know, if they do get stung with these massive bills, they might just declare bankruptcy and walk. And all of the profits that have been funneled off to GDF2 is just kind of are locked away. They're kind of, you know, there's a firewall up there. Um, so one of the very real possibilities in the next anywhere from sort of six to 24 months is that there'll be a very large lawsuit that finds um, Hazelwood Power Corporation criminally negligent and Hazelwood Power Corporation says, great, sorry, we don't exist anymore. Um, uh. And we'll just walk away. Um, and the much larger problem there, and this is one of the other things that the Hazelwood Mine Fire Inquiry has been looking into, is what sort of mine rehabilitation options are left. Um, oh, that's cost millions, that sort of rehabilitation. Well, more like uh, hundreds of millions. Oh, um, yes. So there's a, there's a $15 million rehabilitation bond for the Hazelwood Mine, and I think Hazelwood Power Corporation have estimated it'll cost five times that, so more like $75 million to fix it up. But... Um, other sources, such as Environment Victoria, are saying it's probably more like 250 to $350 million. Um, 
so if they if they walk away declare bankruptcy they'll they'll lose their 15 million dollar bond but that will still leave the state it's government cheap perhaps 300 million dollars in the red um, it's cheap for them well we spoke to senator richard di natale a few weeks ago who'd been to paris and he said he did try to approach the french prime minister about this and and he did speak to french officials about this because it's a french yes. government thing and yes. they it's sort of in the pipeline whether they can get him to have a, a meeting with the french president or a conversation yes. even with him but i feel there's huge there's huge shaming or um yes. you know publicity needed about this because that's I, Really, that's not a lot of insignificant little company, is it? Yeah, that's right. I 100% agree. And I was sort of, I was actually hoping that there would be more sort of international media scrutiny um, brought to bear on GDF Sewers, which is also called NG now, because mm. um, they change their names all the time, so they're hard to track down. I, I wonder I why not, Tom. You're a journalist. Why, why do you think there's not media scrutiny? Um, look, I think, well, I was hoping that when COP21 was happening in Paris that, that people would be joining those dots, and I was sort of making a little bit of noise about it. I, I think partly the problem is just this really opaque and confusing world of multinational global capitalism that we live in where it is really hard to connect uh, patterns of corporate ownership and it's I mean that's how multinational capitalism has evolved so that um, accountability doesn't really exist in a meaningful way and so that sort of responsibility can just dribble away and Mm -hmm. and there have you know there've been plenty of stories in the media in the last few weeks about um you know, coal mines in Queensland and New South Wales getting sold from one subsidiary to another for, you know, ridiculous costs. And suddenly the new owners, they, they can't afford the mine rehab, you know, there either. Um, but so I think, I think there's problems at a, at a fundamental level with the kind of um, world of capitalism that we've, you know, either inherited or allowed to sort well, of the corp- come around. The corporate ownership of the media, maybe, you know, it's keeping this story... Under the radar. Yeah. Well, that, I mean, that doesn't help. And I guess as well, there's this woefully kind of um, toothless regulatory mechanisms where in theory there are these, um, you know, regulatory bodies to kind of keep companies in line, but in practice they just are really toothless, you know. Mm. Um, and that's a sort of, that's a problem of, of weak government and government being too friendly with corporations and too willing to sort of hope there'll be this win-win where, you know, free trade is great and everyone gets money and it, I'm sure the corporations will look after us, the people, and yeah. oh, no. surprisingly enough, no, they don't. And that never happens actually anywhere, ever, just about. Okay. Listen, Tom, this program is about community action on climate change and yeah. I wonder if you could tell us what the Latrobe Valley people who you sell in your book they really are heroes they're worried about their local problem with their coal mine and a lot of them are employed in it but what do they have in common with coal communities in other countries because city slickers like myself are sort of saying coal Mm. close the coal down all the scientists of the world are saying leave it all in the ground but Mm. you know the people in these carbon intensive communities are compromised and are now suffering these huge consequences what do they have in common you know with the you're going to talk at the transition film festival about another um, community affected by coal what do they have in common Well, look, I think one of the things that I think has been really difficult historically but has really shifted since the mine fire has been this kind of mutual antagonism of identity politics between inner-city greenies and um, country coal industry people. You know, it's the greenies versus redneck debate that plays out in Australia and all over the world. Um, Because for people down the Latrobe Valley, you know, the time I've spent down there, it's been so clear to me that there's not a hell of a lot of love for the... um, 
the corporate overlords that, that run the power station, but it's sort of the only game in town for them. It's sort of like a Stockholm Syndrome scenario. Mm-hmm. They don't want to bite the hand that feeds them. And meanwhile, they don't want, pardon my French, any bloody greenies telling them what to do and trying to shut them down. So for, for people in the Latrobe Valley, there's often been a sense that their backs are to the wall and they don't have any option but to keep getting what money they can from what employment they can. Um, and in that, they're very similar to coal mining and industrial communities all over the world, including in... Uh, Appalachia, you know, Virginia, Kentucky, places like that in America. Um, and interestingly, this, this great film, Overburn, which I haven't seen yet, but I'm very much looking forward to seeing next mm-hmm. week, I think it's a very similar story to the Hazelwood Mine Fire story in that you've got this very kind of like, you know, gritty and slightly beaten down community that are very loyal uh, to the coal industry there because they don't really have any other options. Um, and then this horrific accident happens that kills 29 people. And then these, you know, formerly pro-coal activists see everything differently, there's a real sea change moment and they start sort of reassessing the compromises they've made for their for their lives and start sort of campaigning for clean energy and alternative um, industry. And, and I feel like what's, what's happening over in Appalachia is, is very similar to the Trove Valley, um, where there has been a large shift down there and people are getting very excited about solar panels and wind turbines and Tesla batteries and... Mm-hmm. You know, um, there's this fabulous, one of the best success stories, I think, in the Latrobe Valley is um, the work that Earthworker Cooperative are doing. You mm. probably know about Earthworker and yeah. Dan Musil. You know, mm. get them on the show every week. They're fabulous. <laughs> um, so, you know, in a nutshell for your listeners, um, what Earthworker does is employs local people to build solar-powered hot, hot water cylinders. Um, and then it's a worker-owned cooperative, so all the money stays in the community. So it sort of solves all the problems. It solves the problem of emissions. It solves the problem of producing energy and it also solves problems of corporate ownership and opaque um, lack of accountability. So I feel like those sort of the moves to, you know, more, um, you know, think small, think modular, think flexible and think community. There's there's a lot of um, excitement and energy around that in the Trove Valley. Um, Not, not, you know, a fraction of what's actually needed. it, It is really bleak down there, but those kind of innovative approaches are getting a lot more traction down there now because yeah. people are really looking askance at the mine and they know the operator is going to walk away yeah. any day now so they well, they really they need other options well my panelist jane is looking terribly grim about this it's been very terrible for her to hear this and i, I had read your book but it's just it really is terrible what those people are putting up within the bankruptcy of the company that you know walking away that's just the last thing but look before we go what who is responsible for the post-coal planning for the latrobe valley and how will we replace hazelwood's power that coal-fired power how's that going to be replaced i haven't heard anyone talk about it that's a great question and it's sort of a i don't know if it's a billion dollar question it's Definitely hundreds of millions. I mean, the latest inquiry um, report from the Mindfire Inquiry found that a lot more work needs to be done in this transition plan. And I think at the moment, there's some very exciting kind of innovative dreaming being done by community groups such as Voices of the Valley and um, other sort of transition networks down there. But at a sort of more... um, what seems completely lacking is any kind of federal vision. You know, I think some That's state right. vision will be good, but really we need federal vision. And probably Lillitrobe Valley needs it the most, but there'd be plenty of other communities oh. in New South Wales and Queensland yeah. in similar situations. And they, I don't... That's right. I have to wind up now, Tom. It's been so wonderful talking to you, and I think that's a subject for a future program. I don't know who I could interview, but, you know, yeah, government, but make them responsible a bit. Right. All these grassroots groups, uh, they're suffering... 
million dollars at them. The work that Dan Musil could do with twenty million dollars would yeah. be astounding. That's right. That's right. All right. Look, thank you so much for talking us to us. I really look forward to your new book, Tom. I hope you come back on the show and talk to us when you've got that book I'd published. I'd love to, Vivian. Thank you. Thanks, so Thanks much. very talk much. Bye bye. Oh well, that's been a jam-packed program.